Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. This week I was reading the story of the 19th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham. Bentham died in 1832, and he stipulated in his will that all of his estate would be left to the University College Hospital with one stipulation, one condition. Every year at the annual board meeting of the hospital, Bentham wanted his embalmed and preserved body to be wheeled into the meeting and placed at the conference table. And so to be sure they got the money, the hospital did that for years. They would wheel his body in, put it in front of the conference table, and the secretary announcing the attendance would say, Jeremy Bentham, present, but not voting. <laughs> Why did he never cast a vote? There wasn't anything that kept him from casting a vote, <laughs> except that he was dead. And dead people don't vote. What's true in the physical world, ladies and gentlemen, is true in the spiritual world as well. It doesn't matter how many times an unbeliever hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how effectively or powerfully the gospel is presented. An unbeliever, a non-Christian, will never vote for, will never choose Jesus Christ as his Savior. Never. Well, then how is it that anybody can be saved? That's what we're going to discover this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. You know, this letter to the Christians at Ephesus is about the riches we have in Christ Jesus <clears throat> and how our spiritual riches ought to change the way we live every day. And in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul describes from God's point of view all of the blessings he's given to believers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heaven. And remember, he lists seven of those blessings. You could organize them this way. God the Father has selected us. He's chosen us. God the Son has saved us. God the Holy Spirit has secured us and has raised us up to sit with Jesus Christ in heaven. All of those verbs are in the past tense, even though some of them are still future for us. Why is that? Paul's speaking from God's point of view. God isn't bound with time. He doesn't see the past, present, and future. He sees everything is already complete. In fact, everything God has planned for you in his eyes have already happened. So we get the heavenly perspective in chapter 1. But when we get to chapter 2, Paul describes our experience from our point of view. And we see our point of view in simply the way we used to be before Christ to the way we are right now. What has God done for us? Well, let's compare how we were with the way we are right now. First of all, when we get to 
verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul tells us about our desperate situation. That's the way we were. We were in a desperate situation. If you don't believe it, look at what Paul says. He said, first of all, we were spiritually dead. Before you came to faith in Christ, you were spiritually dead. Look at verse 1, and you were dead. Say that with me, dead, dead. What does dead mean? Dead. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that goes against what we hear today in the world. You know, the world basically has three different views of the human condition. Most people believe, most unbelievers especially, believe that man is basically good. We may have a few defects and flaws here and there, but most of the time, most people will do the right thing. We are basically good. And if there are any defects, it's because our environment is not what it should be. So the unbeliever focuses on changing the world, changing the environment of the world so that man can reach his full potential. Now, we know that's not right. We know man is not basically good if we look at Scripture. And so many Christians have adopted the second view, and that is man is basically sinful. Because of Adam's fall, we have inherited Adam's guilt and his corruption. And apart from Christ, we will sin. We will do things that disobey God. Uh, we are spiritually not just flawed, we are spiritually sick. We have a terminal case. We're in a desperate situation. But this view says there's a glimmer of hope because there's just enough of the God image left in an unbeliever that he can choose to trust in Christ as his Savior and become a new person. That is the second viewpoint. Man is sinful, but he can be redeemed. But the third point of view is what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that we're good. The Bible doesn't even teach that we're sick. The Bible teaches that we are spiritually dead. We are completely unresponsive to the things of God. That's what Paul says. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. The late Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe put it this way, the unbeliever is not sick, he is dead. He does not need a resuscitation, he needs a resurrection. All lost sinners are dead, and the only difference between one sinner and another is his state of decay. The lost derelict on Skid Row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader, but both are dead in sin, and one corpse cannot be more dead than another corpse. This means that our world is one vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they're alive. Steve Farrar uses this illustration. Just imagine you go to the cemetery to visit a loved one, and while you're grieving over that loved one, you notice out of the corner of your eye to the right a hand poking up out of the ground. <laughs> then you notice another hand making its way above the ground. Then you see a foot pop up and another foot pop up and finally you walk, watch in astonishment as a person in a black suit lifts himself out of the grave, shakes himself off and said, boy, that sure was unpleasant, and looks at you and says, can you give me a ride to town? <laughs> 
Now, what would you think about that? That would be absolutely ridiculous. Such a thing could never happen. Why? Dead people cannot resurrect themselves. And it's the same way. An unbeliever, there's nothing he can do by himself to make himself spiritually alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. May I just say a word about those two words, trespasses and sin? We are dead in our trespasses and our sin. The word trespasses in Greek here means to slip. It means to stumble. It's like James 2.10 says, a person can keep all of the law, but if he stumbles, if he slips up, in one place, he's guilty of breaking all the law. Just think about it. You could spend a lifetime obeying every one of God's commandments perfectly. And then when you're 75 years old, you have your first lustful thought or you tell your first lie. One slip up after 75 years of perfection, the Bible says you are just as guilty as the worst sinner who spent his entire life sinning. We're guilty. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses, in our slip-ups. And then he says, you were dead in your sins. Now, that word sins, hamartia, means to miss the mark, to fall short of God's perfection. Let's just say that during this cold weather, you decide you want some relief, so you go down to the Gulf, to Galveston, to enjoy some sun, some warm weather. And you're there with two of your family members, and you're there and said, you know, this is nice, but I've always heard that Florida is a good place to go. Why don't we go from here to Tampa? And let's just jump from Galveston to Tampa. So you and your family members try to jump. The first person in your family is able to make it three feet. Another person is able to make nine feet. By the way, a college student in his good shape, I read this week, can broad jump nine feet. But let's say you, unlike your other family members, you're able to go further than three feet or nine feet. You're able to go 15 feet in, in your way to Tampa. Now, who wins the contest? Nobody, because it's 70, 758 miles from Galveston to Tampa. There's really no difference between three feet, nine feet, and 15 feet. You've fallen woefully short of the goal. And that gives meaning to what the Word of God says in Romans 3 when Paul says, there's not one person righteous among us. He says, oh, there are a lot of righteous people among us. Paul says, there's not one righteous person among us. No, not even one, for all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. The standard is not what other people do or don't do. The standard is a perfect God. And by that standard, we've all fallen short. You are dead, apart from Christ, in your trespasses and sins. Now, without getting too far into the grammatical weeds here, can I point out one other thing? That phrase, in trespasses and sin. The, the form of that phrase, the grammar of that phrase, denotes not causality, but location. In other words, the reason we are spiritually dead is not because of our trespasses and sins. That's what most people think it means. It's not because of our trespasses and sins that we are spiritually dead. We are in trespasses and sins because we are spiritually dead. It's the location we operate in because of our spiritual death. We are in the realm of sin and trespasses. Let me illustrate it for you this way. When you say somebody 
is dead and in the grave, are you saying that they are, uh, in the, they are dead because they're in the grave? No. The grave didn't make them dead. It's the result of being dead. And it's the same way with us. The reason we sin is because we are spiritually dead. We are not spiritually dead because we sin. A thief is not a thief because he steals. He steals because of in his heart of hearts, he is a thief. A liar isn't a liar because he lies. He lies because inside he's a liar. An adulterer is not an adulterer because he commits adultery. He commits adultery because in his heart he's an adulterer. That's what Paul is saying here. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And you don't have to prove that theologically. That is true everywhere around us. I think about the mother who was making pancakes one Saturday morning for her two younger boys. Kevin was age five, Ryan was age three, and they were having an argument over who got the first pancake. And the mother said, you know, boys, if Jesus were here, he'd give the first pancake to his brother. Kevin turned to Ryan and said, Ryan, you be Jesus today. It's not just little boys that have that tendency. We all have that pull towards sin. We don't train our children to do evil. We don't have to train them to lie, to be self-centered, to cheat. We have to try to help them unlearn that inclination. Why? Because all of us, including children, are born spiritually dead. Paul says not only were we dead apart from Christ, if that's not enough, we were depraved. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 again. We are dead in our trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, you might wonder, where if we're spiritually dead, how do we walk anywhere? Paul says people are spiritually dead, but they're walking around in trespasses and sin. How can a dead person walk? Have you ever seen a zombie movie before? You know what zombies are. They're dead, but they're walking around looking for flesh, human flesh to eat. One of the most popular shows on television just a few years ago was The Walking Dead. It's about zombies. And if you watch that program, you'll notice that the zombies in every episode get worse and worse looking. They're more and more decayed. There's more flesh hanging off their arms. Their smell gets worse. They are dead, but they think they're alive, and all they want to do is get more flesh to eat. Well, the Bible says a non-Christian is depraved. He may be alive physically, but all he wants to do is to indulge his flesh. And what's interesting about spiritual zombies is they really think they're alive. Non-Christians think they're alive and having the time of their lives, and they pity people like you and me who are Christians. They think, oh, those Christians, they are just slaves to their religion. They're slaves to their fables. They can't really live life like I am and they're spiritually dead and don't even realize it. Did you know, by the way, that every one of us is a slave? The question is not, are you a slave? The question is, whose slave are you? 
We're all either serving God or serving ourselves or serving Satan, but we're all slaves to someone or something. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to somebody as a slave for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. We're all slaves to somebody, but we get to choose our master. That's the great thing. Now go back to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Look at whom the Unbeliever is a slave to, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the air, and according to the Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. An unbeliever, the non-Christian, is first of all a slave to the world. Now, by world, Paul doesn't mean planet Earth. The word world, cosmos, in the New Testament is used 186 times. It always refers to the world system. The world system, the power system of Washington, D.C., the entertainment world in Hollywood, the world systems, and an unbeliever is a slave to those systems. He wants to walk and talk like everybody else. A non-Christian wants to dress like everybody else. A non-Christian has the same musical taste as a non-Christian. They conform to the world, the world system. But not only are they slaves to the world, they are slaves to the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. The Bible teaches that Satan is the god of this age, as Paul said. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is temporarily in charge of the world system. An unbeliever doesn't know he's serving Satan when he follows the course of the world, but he is. And not only are we slaves to the world system and to Satan, but we're slaves to our own desires as sons of disobedience. You are a slave, no matter how free you are, to whatever it is that controls your life. By the way, you want to know who your master is, whom you're really serving? It's whatever you can't say no to. Whatever in your life you can't say no to, whether it's a person, whether it's a drug, whether it's alcohol, whether it's an immoral relationship, whatever you can't say no to is your master. 2 Peter 2.19 says, by what a person is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Paul says, we were slaves to the world. We were slaves to Satan, we were slaves to ourselves apart from Christ. Not only were we dead and depraved, but thirdly, and this really gets bad, we were doomed. Look at verse 3, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What wrath is he talking about? He's talking about God's wrath, God's anger. We were born into this world as objects of God's wrath. Now, I know it's politically incorrect to talk about the wrath or anger of God. That's why I love the Bible. It's so politically incorrect. Did you know the Bible talks about God's anger or wrath at least 600 times? The Bible talks about the anger, the wrath of God. But it's interesting. There are several different Greek words in the New Testament for anger. There's thumos. That word literally refers to a rage. 
a Vesuvius-like explosion that you may experience on the North Dallas Tollway when somebody cuts you off and you just boil over in rage and indignation and you want to go chase that car down and tell that driver and give him a piece of your mind you can't afford to lose. I mean, that is uh, thumos, that kind of rage. And a lot of people assume God is like we are and he just gets angry and gets out of control and can't help himself. That's not the word. The word that's used to describe God's anger most of the time is the word orge. And it literally means to grow ripe. It refers to a kind of anger that is just steadily building and building. It is God's settled opposition to that which is evil. One commentator notes, that is what makes God's anger so frightening. It is consistent, controlled, and it's always just. And God's orge, His anger, is like water that builds behind a dam. And that water keeps building and building and building until one day the dam crumbles and that water is poured out on the residents below. God's anger, His settled opposition, His wrath is building toward people every day. Every sinful action, every sinful thought only increases God's anger toward that person. And one day, it will be poured out on every unbeliever at the great white throne judgment. And everybody who is at that judgment, his works will be judged, and he will not be judged to have enough righteousness to enter into the kingdom of God. And he will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20 says, and he will be tortured, tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what the Word of God says. But here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God takes that wrath that we deserve, and he poured it out on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing the words on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But the unbeliever doesn't experience that grace. He becomes the object of God's eternal, everlasting wrath. What was our condition apart from Christ? We were in a desperate situation. We were spiritually dead, incapable of making any response. We were depraved, getting worse and worse in our spiritual sickness, and we were doomed to an eternity of separation from God. It doesn't get much worse than that. But then, Paul says two words in verse 4, but God. But God, ladies and gentlemen, the only hope we have is that God would intervene in our desperate situation. You know, that is true throughout Scripture, but God can change everything. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but such is common to people. But God is faithful who won't allow you to be tested beyond that which you are able. Maybe somebody has done something to hurt you to offend you, to scar you for life. What does the Bible say about that? That person meant evil against you, Genesis 50, 20. But God is able to use it for good to bring about this present result and preserve many people alive. We need God's intervention. 
And it's beginning in verse four that Paul describes how God intervened in our desperate situation with his loving liberation. Look, if you will, at God's miracle, first of all, what he did for us. First of all, he resurrected us. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, here it is, verse five, he made us alive together with Christ. Our resurrection what does that mean, our resurrection? You know, you've heard this analogy perhaps before. I may have used it before. Imagine you're on a cruise ship out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and one of your fellow passengers accidentally falls overboard and he's in the water, out there in the middle of the water. He's going down to the third down and he's about to die. When you see a life preserver, you see his desperate situation and you throw him the life preserver. Nobody else has a life preserver. You're the one that throws the life preserver. And that drowning victim possibly has a choice to make. He can try to save himself, but he's not doing a good job at that. He's drowning, or he can grab hold of the life preserver and be taken to a place of safety. Now, that's an analogy of a non-Christian. A non-Christian hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and grabs hold of it. There aren't many ways to God. There's one way through faith in Jesus Christ. And by grabbing hold of that life preserver, he takes advantage of that offer of eternal life. There's only one problem with that analogy. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He says, in this case, it's not throwing a life preserver to somebody who's alive. Imagine you look out there in the ocean and you see somebody floating face down in the ocean. They are dead. Would you ever throw a life preserver to them? A life preserver would do them absolutely no good at all. They're dead. They are incapable of responding. It's the same way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's important that we share the gospel. Nobody is saved apart from the gospel. They have to hear the gospel to be saved. But a non-Christian will never, ever, ever take advantage of the gospel unless God intervenes in his situation. God takes somebody who is absolutely spiritually dead and makes him alive. Now, he has a choice. I do not believe in irresistible grace. I think you can say no to God. The Bible is filled with illustrations like that. But that spiritually dead person will never come to spiritual life and grab hold of the gospel apart from the intervention of God. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What did God do in our situation? If you're a Christian today, it's because God has resurrected you. He has given you spiritual life, the ability to respond. But not only that, he released us. He's resurrected us, but he has also released us. Look at verse 6, and he has raised us up with him. Now, some people think that's the same thing. He's saying the same thing twice, resurrected us and raised us. No, when he talks about resurrection, he's talking about what he did for Jesus on that Easter Sunday morning. He made him alive. But remember, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection on the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven. And that's what he's alluding to here. Just as God raised up Jesus from one realm of existence, planet Earth, to another realm of existence, heaven, he has raised us up to a new way of living, a new world. Not the world of spiritual zombies or spiritually dead people, but the 
uh, world of those who are alive to Christ. And that's why Paul said in Romans 6, 2, how can those who have died to sin still live in it? Why would you ever want to live in that old world you lived in before you were a Christian that was filled with disobedience to God? Remember when Lazarus died? His sisters participated in the wrapping of his body in those claws and 100 pounds of spice to uh, slow down the decay of the body. But after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, what did Jesus say? Lazarus stumbles out of the grave from the darkness to the light, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Those grave clothes need to come off. They were fine for the grave, but they have no place in the world. And in the same way God has said, when we are saved, we leave behind the old grave clothes, the stinking, wretched grave clothes of sin and disobedience. Grave clothes are not suitable for the world. They're suitable for the tomb, for the grave. We've been raised to a whole new way of living. Why would anybody go back into a tomb? Why would anybody put on those filthy grave clothes, those filthy habits that have no place in the kingdom of God? That's what God has done for us. He has not only resurrected us, he has raised us. And thirdly, he reinstated us. Look at verse 6. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does it mean God seated us with himself? Remember, Jesus right now is at the right hand of God the Father. He's in the power seat. He's equal to God. But when you trust in Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ, which means if you're a Christian today, you are just as close to the heart of God the Father as his own beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We have been reinstated into a relationship with God we were dead. We were depraved. We were doomed. But God has resurrected us. He has raised us. He has reinstated us. And why did he do it? What was God's motive in intervening in our situation? You know what some people say? They say, well, God was lonely up there in heaven. The angels just weren't cutting it with him. He wanted somebody else to have fellowship with so he wouldn't be lonely, so he created us. And when we messed up, he saved us so he wouldn't be lonely any longer. That borders on blasphemous. Ladies and gentlemen, God, God got along just fine for billions and trillions of years without you or me. He doesn't need us to make him happy. He's self-sufficient. Some other people say, well, God looked down on us and he saved us because he saw something worthwhile in us. He saw something good in us, and that's why he saved us. What does God say about us? He says we were dead, depraved, and doomed. That's hard to see anything good in that. No, there wasn't anything good in us that he saw that motivated him to save us. Other people say, well, God looked down the corridor of history, and he saved those he knew would eventually trust in Christ as their Savior. It had to do with what they would do one day. No, listen to what Charles Spurgeon says in rebuttal to that. He said, oh, if God were to put my salvation in my hands, I should be lost in 10 minutes. But my salvation is not there. It is in Christ's hands. Well, then what was God's motive in saving us? Look at this in verse 4. God's motive, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God is filled with mercy. 
Mercy means God not giving us what we deserve, eternal death. And not only that, he's filled with grace. Verse 5, for by grace you have been saved. Now look at verse 7. He saved us so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us for no other reason than he loved us. He felt compassion for us. He looked down on our desperate situation and something moved in him to help us. Ladies and gentlemen, your salvation has absolutely nothing to do with you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. A compassionate God, a grace-filled God, a God who is willing to forgive anyone who asks. The late James Boyce used to tell the story of a true story of a social worker in London named Henry Morehouse. One day, Morehouse was on his way home, and he saw a little girl, 10-year-old girl, carrying a pitcher of milk, and she stumbled on the curb. The pitcher slipped out of her hand, and it was broken into several pieces on the ground, and the milk ran out into the gutter. And he saw the girl begin to cry, and he approached her and said, honey, why are you crying? She said, my mother will whip me. My mother will whip me. My mother will whip me. He said, let me help you. So he tried to put that picture back together, and he got the pieces together, and then they would fall apart again. And the girl started crying more loudly. My mother is going to whip me. My mother's going to whip me. And finally, Morehouse took the little girl down the block to a crockery shop, and bought her a new pitcher. Then he took her to the store and filled it up with milk. And uh, Morehouse said, now do you think your mommy's going to whip you? She smiled and said, no, not at all, because this picture is more beautiful than the one we had before. Now, why did Morehouse intervene in that situation? Why did he take time to stop? Did he receive any money for doing it? No. Did he receive recognition? Nobody saw it. He did it because he felt compassion for her. And that's what God has done for us. God created us because he did want to have fellowship with us. He didn't need us, but he wanted it. And yet, even though we were made in the image of God, sin has shattered us spiritually. And God had every right to discard us to do away with us and start over again if he wanted to with somebody else, with some other creation. But he didn't discard us. He didn't even try to repair us or fix us. Instead, he offers to make us a brand new person if we trust in Christ. For in Christ, we become a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. What's God's motivation in doing it? His love, his compassion. And you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, who is being rich in mercy, has raised us up and made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, grace, you have been saved through faith. Praise God for his mercy, his undeserved grace in our lives. Let's bow together in a word of prayer.
It is impossible for an unbeliever to ever choose to be saved apart from the work of God in his life. But hear me today. If you're not a Christian yet, but you feel that desire in your heart for God's forgiveness in your life, if you feel that desire to become a new person, to be delivered out of your old way of living, that's a sign that God is working in your life right now. You didn't come to the conclusion on your own. You don't come to understand the gospel on your own. But if you understand that Jesus is God's son and that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, if you understand you can't save yourself, you can't be good enough to get into heaven, you need God's forgiveness, that's God calling you to himself. Now, you have to respond. A gift's not a gift unless it's received. John 1.12 says, but as many as received Jesus to those, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Today, you have a choice to say yes to God's gift of forgiveness or to reject it, to harden your hearts and say no. Today, if you would like to receive God's gift of forgiveness, I encourage you to say this prayer right now in your heart to God knowing that your heavenly Father is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today. I believe you loved me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, to take the punishment that I deserve to take. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.